Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today is part two of our overview of sex education in the United States of America. And last time on the podcast, we gave an overview of how sex ed curriculum developed in American schools and gave some stats at the end to talk about whether or not it's effective Because the point of sex education is to prevent teen pregnancy, lower rates of STI contraction, and lower the rates of HIV and AIDS contraction as well. Right. And what we touched on last time was basically that despite having so much money in this country poured into sex education or abstinence education for our kids, we have one of the highest rates in the world of teen pregnancy and STIs. So something, there's a disconnect somewhere. Yes. Right. And a lot of times the knee-jerk blame goes to sex ed and especially abstinence-only sex education, which is the predominant form of sex ed that kids are getting in public schools. Private schools are a different matter because private schools can kind of do what they want. Right. Um, but when it comes to public schools, abstinence is typically the law of the land But to give you an idea of the difference between abstinence-only education and abstinence-plus education, which is also taught in public schools and is also synonymous with comprehensive sex education, um, abstinence-only promotes abstinence from sex, obviously. Um, It doesn't acknowledge that many teenagers will become sexually active, kind of disregards the whole sex for pleasure and exploration and hormonal drives and things like that. Um, it doesn't typically teach about contraception or condom use, avoids discussions of abortion, and cites sexually transmitted diseases and HIV as reasons to remain abstinent. Whereas abstinence plus also promotes abstinence from sex because, yes, that is the only 100% foolproof form of birth control. But it also acknowledges that, you know what, a lot of teens are going to become sexually active at some point, and they will teach them about contraception and condom use, as well as abortion, STDs, and HIV. Right. And Douglas Kirby in Emerging Answers 2007, which is sort of, it's it's a big overview of a lot of studies about sex ed, um, writes that after looking at all these studies, it's clear that preventing STDs among our young people requires a more complex approach than either don't have sex or if you have sex, use a condom. Um, in addition to promoting abstinence and condom use, programs to prevent STDs can and should emphasize reducing the number of sexual partners, avoiding concurrent sexual partners, increasing the number of weeks or months between sexual partners, and getting tested for and seeking treatment for STDs. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of, it's, it's multifaceted, basically. In, in an ideal world, sex ed would, I think, maybe touch on a lot of these different topics to really arm kids with the information they need. Because the fact of the matter is that, yes, in uh, the teenage years, chances are people will become sexually active. Uh, statistically, by your 19th birthday, 7 in 10 teens of both sexes have had intercourse. Um, and 
one in four teens in the United States who's sexually active will contract an STI, and one in four college students will contract an STI during those college years, especially HPV, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And there are concerns, too, among sex educators that with the hookup culture that predominates the sexual landscape among younger people, younger singles, uh, that not having a more comprehensive sex ed approach is really kind of sending them into the lion's den. Right. I kind of have this, this idea in my mind that uh, comprehensive sex ed is sort of vilified oh, yeah. in our society. And that got me thinking about what is the mainstream public actually thinking? What are parents, teachers, and even kids themselves thinking about sex ed? And I found that um, a lot of the mainstream public thinking is that we do need more of a comprehensive mm-hmm. sex education program and that um, abstinence-only policy and programs that have roots in particular religious viewpoints are often at odds with that mainstream thinking. Well, I think a lot of times the reason that, um, you know, there, there's kind of a confusion about sex ed and, and that vilification of comprehensive sex ed is because we tend to uh, to maybe think that comprehensive sex ed is promoting sex, the act right. of sex. It's saying, hey, you know what, kids? Go out, have fun, start a revolution with your bodies. But that's not the case. I mean, you have to you have to separate it and realize that actually sex ed is promoting prevention rather than uh, just a free-for-all. Right. And one thing I found in uh, the Emerging Answers study was that surveys consistently show that the public wants schools to deliver strong abstinence messages alongside information about Mm self-protection for young people. So they want, yes, they want their kids to be abstaining from sex and wait until they're mentally, physically, emotionally prepared for it, which is smart. But, you know, kids are hormonal and we have a sex-driven society. So there's a lot of exploration and curiosity that happens. Kids find themselves in certain sexual situations. Shouldn't they be, shouldn't they have this information at hand? Exactly. And information at hand given to them in the safe confines of a school classroom. Well, we hope it's a safe, safe classroom. Um, rather than having to seek out that information on their own, cobble it together from what they hear from peers, what they can gather from the internet. You know, oh, the internet. Because uh, I mean, they'll they'll figure they'll figure things out if they if they want to. Not to make myself sound like a a scary old lady. Yes, and to continue the theme of trying not to scare people, um, uh, th- this New York Times article that we talked about last time um, mentioned a sex education conference where it was brought up that a lot of kids who aren't getting most of their information from school or their parents are actually getting a lot of their sexual and relationship information from porn, which they pointed out is not a good thing because, you know, they talked to one kid who was in the sex ed class and he was like, yeah, being in this comprehensive sexual education class really taught me that there is more to sexual relationships than just having the woman try to please you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the idea of like, Young people just finding out about sex and relationships from pornography and which the is internet. So, which is so accessible now. That's the right. thing. Pornography used to not be obviously as accessible. I mean, you could maybe find, you know, the old cliche dad's stash of old, mm-hmm. you know, dirty rags. Uh, but aside from that, you know, 
But now, man, it is you just sit on the internet. Different world out there that we're living in. Uh, and and another thing too uh, that that critics of abstinence only education um, will bring up is the fact that a lot of populations, teen populations, are really left out of that kind of education. It's overlooking their specific needs um, because a lot of times, I mean, as you can imagine. Education that uh, basically boxes you into a heteronormative, uh, monogamous, uh, heterosexual, married, married uh, relationship is not all inclusive. Right. Um, a March 2002 study called Abstinence Only Versus Comprehensive Sex Education, a pretty straightforward title, um, says that abstinence only education really leaves out big chunks of our young people, um, including men who are having sex with other men, homeless youth and runaways, bisexuals, transgendered individuals, drug users, uh, injection drug users. Victims of sexual abuse, mentally ill youth, and young people in the penal or foster care systems. All of these young people are at a an elevated risk of contracting HIV, but they're not really included in this traditional um, abstinence education viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And also, according to research from the Guttmacher Institute, black and Latino teens are at higher risk than their white counterparts to have unplanned pregnancies and contract STDs. And that's one of the reasons why, for instance, the New York City Public Schools just this past August announced that it would start requiring middle and high school students to take sex education classes with curriculum that discusses condom use, the appropriate age for sexual activity, um, and more under that abstinence plus umbrella. Right. And I, I want to go back and focus on only abstinence only for a minute. Um, from that Emerging Answers 2007 study, uh, Douglas Kirby writes that at present there is no strong evidence that any abstinence program delays the initiation of sex, hastens the return to abstinence, or reduces the number of sexual partners. Um, I, I did read that virginity pledges can delay the first sexual uh, the first sexual intercourse, but not forever and right. not for long. It's typically, I think the average was 18 months. Right. And I think what's interesting about virginity pledges um, is that it seems that they're effective when you're part of a small select group mm-hmm. making the pledge. Like you feel like you're included in this group and you've got your friends backing you up. But if the group is too small, if it's just you and your best friend, or if it's too big, it's you and your whole city committing to never having sex before marriage, um, it it, it doesn't work as well. It's not as effective. So maybe in a youth group situation, it could be effective Mm -hmm. or or something along those lines. Um, But in bigger or smaller situations, it doesn't really change what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and that, the thing is too, um, uh, like you said, they, they might have a little bit of a delaying effect, a, a motivator for, uh, for teens to delay sexual activity until they feel like they're more ready to do so, which is a good thing. But at the same time, um, studies have found that ultimately, uh, even kids who take those virginity pledges are equally as likely to contract an STD as their non-pledging peers. And just again, like, I, I want to really underscore the fact that we're not saying that abstinence should not be taught in classrooms. Absolutely, abstinence should be taught mm-hmm. in classrooms. It should definitely be an option for kids. Yeah. Um, and it shouldn't be uncool to not be having sex, um, but it should be part of, you know, of the broader and more realistic 
conversation because going back to that initial statistic that we tossed out by the age of 19, a majority of kids have had intercourse and should they not be more prepared? Right. Um, and, and the CDC gave a, offered a breakdown of the different types of topics that are and aren't addressed in abstinence only courses, which a lot of times for a lot of, uh, middle and high schools, really consist of a few hours in the classroom in the entire year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like I mentioned in the first uh, sex ed podcast, my sex ed in high school lasted about 10 minutes in biology class one day. And I don't even really remember if I had any at all. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I did. So just for an example, uh, this is in a pregnancy prevention curriculum um, in public schools in the, in the United States. Uh, in high school, 65% of those kids will learn about condom efficacy, whether or not condoms work, how often they work. Awesome. And yet only 38.5% learn how to correctly use a condom. Oh dear. Which it seems like those should go hand in hand. One would think. It's like, I know this thing can work for something, but if only I could get it on right. Yes, I keep filling it with water and throwing it at people. It's <laughs> not working. Um, only uh, just under 60% will learn about methods of contraception, uh, a lot more emphasis on risks associated with teen pregnancy, uh, resisting peer pressure to engage in sexual behavior, social or cultural influences on sexual behavior, all of those things which are, again, yes, it's important, but uh, there's so much to sex beyond just teen pregnancy. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, health, safety, all of those things. Um, and, you know, many abstinence programs improve have been shown to improve teens' values about abstinence mm-hmm. and their intentions to remain abstinent, but the improvements didn't always stick um, and didn't always translate into changes in behavior. Like going back to the virginity pledge thing, when I was in eighth grade, my math tutor, my algebra tutor, mm-hmm. uh, tried to get me to sign one of those pledges. She was a senior, I believe. Okay. And, you know, she she gave a big speech about it and then, gave me a piece of paper to sign. And I, as a 14-year-old, was like, well, I mean, I don't plan to have sex tomorrow, <laughs> but geez, I can't promise you that I'm going to wait until I get married. Who knows when that's going to be? Who you're, knows very, when... you're a very pragmatic 14-year-old. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a genius um, and very humble. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's great if you have these intentions and you are self-aware, but I think you can be self-aware about not having sex mm-hmm. and you can be self-aware about, well, it might happen one day. I just want to be ready for it. Yeah. And I think that's why there was one study that we ran across um, looking at the efficacy of abstinence-only programs. And they said that, yeah, they can they, they can be really effective when they're tailored to specific community groups and they don't... Uh, you know, criticize contraception, birth control, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like abstinence or the highway. Uh. Right. <laughs> well, comprehensive sex ed, uh, as opposed to abstinence only, it acknowledges that teens will become, many teens, not all, obviously, mm-hmm. many teens will become sexually active, and it teaches about contraception and condom use, like we said. And one study showed that two-thirds of the 48 comprehensive programs that supported both abstinence and the use of condoms and contraceptives had positive behavioral effects. Yeah. Meaning that now that these kids knew about STDs and pregnancy and all that stuff, Perhaps they could use that information and avoid those things. Uh, and let's offer up some some positive news. We kind of been we've been a little little downerish so far. But here's the thing: uh, National Survey of Family Growth 
from the CDC this year, 2011, reported that teen pregnancy has dropped 37 percent from 1991 to 2009. And now at this point, I have a feeling a number of listeners are saying 37 percent. That's pretty significant. You gals are crazy. Obviously, abstinence only education is totally working. Well, mm-hmm. the Guttmacher Institute says that. A majority, 86% of the decline in teen pregnancy rate, and this is between 95 and 2002, so it's just a chunk of that time, was the result of dramatic improvements in contraceptive use. Doesn't right. necessarily mean it's because kids are not um, kids, because these adolescents, these teenagers are not having sex, uh, because 8 out of 10 teen males used a condom the first time they had sex, which is up 9% since 2002. So we're learning something along the way. Yeah. Where they're learning about condom use, that's the question because, you know, only under 40% of them are learning anything about how to put on a condom in high school. Right. You would hope that they're having conversations with their parents, but I know that's not always the case either. And But, I mean, a lot of parents uh, in, in surveys, national surveys, um, support all of these conversations happening in school. And well, I'm, probably I'm not, because that, that will save them. Yeah, they're like, this is some so of the pressure of, of having to do the dinner table. Right. And I mean, there's nothing, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, parents should parent mm-hmm. and talk to their kids and feel like it's okay to be the adult and talk to your kid about sex and, and whatever and being careful. Um, but, you know, it's good to encourage that conversation to happen in school too, I think. Absolutely. Wherever they can get it. <laughs> You know, I mean, wherever they can get that information. That's that's not um, from from Cosmo or the Internet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't get your information from Cosmo. <laughs> um, a survey commissioned by the Kaiser Family Foundation um, showed that 98 percent of parents who responded, 98 percent, that's almost all of them, <laughs> say they want HIV and AIDS discussed in sex ed classes and 85 percent want how to use condoms mm-hmm. discussed. So that's a lot of parents who want how to use condoms discussed and not a lot of how to use condoms discussed being discussed. Uh, but we that can't. That makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> but um, speaking of parents, though, to me, the, uh, the, the, the take home from all this information about sex ed of, you know, does abstinence only work? Does abstinence plus work? What do we tell kids? We still, the United States still has one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the developed world. What's going on? Um, and really the takeaway is, I mean, the best thing that you can do as a parent is talk to your kids about sex at home and from an early age. Yeah. Age, use age appropriate conversation. Right. And my, yeah. uh, and talking about sex, I'm talking about sexuality, just, you know, like kids get curious about different body parts. How does this work? What does that do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not all birds and the bees. Yeah. Don't leave them alone with their Barbie dolls and Ken dolls. Explain, <laughs> explain what's going on and that men don't actually have just a smooth plastic crotch region. <laughs> Like Ken does. Uh, for instance, the Mayo Clinic advises, uh, that even by the age of three or four, um, this is when kids will start to notice, children start to notice that their bodies are perhaps different from other bar- bodies and to, um, you know, to really address any kind of natural curiosity that they might have. Um, and even if you're kind of uncomfortable with it, because yes, of course, talking about sexuality to, uh, to your children, I am sure I can't speak from experience, but being that child and having my parent talk to me when I was almost 12 um, <laughs> was uh, kind of unnerving, but memorable 
you know, and I yeah. think, and I'm glad that my mom did it. Right. Even though I was like, whoa, <laughs> a lady. Ugh. Well, I read <laughs> this. I don't, uh, I read that Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt tell their kids sometimes that mom and dad are going off to kiss. Oh, that's good. So sweet. like, you know, your kids are aware that things happen, birds and bees and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, and that's more age appropriate for little kids. Yeah. You know, when they start asking like where babies come from and how are babies made? Maybe it's time to be a little more specific than kissing. Well, and by fostering that conversation, uh, Planned Parenthood, you know, says that talking to kids about sexuality is a lifelong conversation. And if you mm-hmm. start it early, then hopefully the goal is that you create an, an open enough atmosphere at home that if your child has a question, then they can, they can ask you. Right. And, you know, talking about parents, conversation with parents and conversations at school, I do think it's interesting that no comprehensive program that was studied was shown to hasten the initiation of sex or have the result of increased frequency of sex, which is what a lot of people fear. Like, oh, my God, if we talk about sex and tell them that condoms are available, they're all just going to run out and do it, Mm -hmm. which is not the case. I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I'm trying to think about sex ed (laughs) if I had it at all. But I mean, I just don't. I think if you're telling kids about STDs, Mm -hmm. they're not. I mean. Two things are connected, I don't think. They learn about STDs and they want to go have sex. You should just give them the information to protect themselves. And um, and it's also difficult to quantify whether or not um, certain programs are effective because it's, you know, what what's the, uh, you know, what's your, your measurement? What are your goalposts mm-hmm. for that? So um, one study that I found that I thought was a, a nice comparison um, looked at sex education programs in the United States um, and teen pregnancy rates and teen STI contraction rates in the U.S. Uh, compared against other developed countries. And this is in 2005, and it's uh, U.S. versus France, Netherlands, and Australia. And they found that the average age of the first intercourse was about the same for each country. Mm-hmm. Kids were having, you know, same same sexes, same amounts of sex. Same, same sexes. Same, same sexes. Um, but the analysis indicated that France, Netherlands, and Australia offered these more pragmatic and sex-positive courses and as a result they tended to have better sexual health related statistics than uh the united states that had a primary primarily sexually abstinent based policy right well i mean i don't think that i don't know i just feel like some programs can maybe make sex out to be this this big bad awful scary thing that you should avoid until right, because you're it is married. because it's all prevention it's you don't don't get babies don't get right. hiv don't get stis don't get, don't get babies don't get babies don't just go picking up babies <laughs> um but maybe i mean maybe if we fostered a better more healthy attitude and not that you know please don't think that i'm saying that abstinence is an unhealthy attitude right but if we fostered a a more open discussion if we had healthier attitudes in terms of being honest with our kids uh and our our students you know, maybe maybe kids would have better attitudes about sex and not think of it as this thing that they have to sneak around. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think at some point, uh, you know, teens and sex, adolescents and sex will always be kind of taboo. Sure, because but... you want to protect you want to protect young people. Right. You know, you don't want them exposed to obviously diseases or emotional turmoil or anything like that. But 
I just feel like, and I, I don't mean to sound defeatist, but I, I just think it's inevitable that teenagers are going to have sex. Yeah. I a mean, a lot of them, a lot of them. And, um, although the, uh, the, the percentage of kids who are having sex, I think, um, between the ages of 15 and 19 has steadily declined in the U S since the late eighties, but yes, it's still happening. And, um, I will say that the, um, healthcare reform legislation that the Obama administration passed did include, um, $114.5 million allocation for a teen pregnancy prevention program through the office of adolescent health that, uh, wanted to provide for more of that abstinence plus education. Because there are some states, which we mentioned in the last podcast, there are actually a number of states that are beginning to and already have refused the uh, the, the federal funding for abstinence-only education. And states that have rejected federal abstinence-only funds generally cite concerns about the efficacy and accuracy of the curricula. Because one thing that I read over and over again was that a lot of, and not all, a lot of abstinence-only programs use somewhat inaccurate information and sometimes scare tactics about condoms. Mm-hmm. They've uh, they've taken a couple of studies that that show, you know, condoms aren't the best, you know, the most effective form of birth control, and are maybe inflating those negative results to make it seem like, oh well, you, tough luck, you just better never have sex in your life. So, I, I mean, I think there's there's definitely concerns out there about some of the abstinence-only curricula. Well, here, why don't I put it in some pretty harsh terms. From a 2010 study uh, from Sexuality Research and Social Policy at the University of California, which concluded that abstinence-only until marriage sex education programs fail to change sexual behavior, provide inaccurate information about condoms, and even violate human rights principles. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's yeah, a harsh verdict. Students' right to know yeah. things, and teachers' right to answer questions and tell them that information. And um, I would really like to hear from from sex educators out there because a what a, a difficult job yeah. that has to be. You have to walk a very fine line, I would think. Sure, um, especially if you're in uh, in a public school. Um, so I'm I'm kind of curious to know how uh, sex educators handle that and mm-hmm. and work to educate kids um, and whether or not kids in classrooms really want to know. Because, yeah, sure, especially if like you're in middle school or even elementary school, kids can get very uncomfortable and mm-hmm. giggly when you start talking about these kinds of things. So um, I'm, yes, I'm impressed with the with the work that sex, sex educators are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to know what listeners' sex ed experiences were, because mm-hmm. I can barely remember mine except for an assembly I talked about last the last podcast about an assembly about AIDS and HIV where actual patients came in and talked to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really remember having any sort of comprehensive or abstinence only education thrown my way in a, in a private school setting. So yeah, what are, what are our listeners experiences? What did they learn? And if you, anything. Yeah. And do you think it even matters at this yeah. point is, should we care less about the schools and, and worry more about what's being taught at home? Um, it's uh, big questions out there. And I will say one more time, folks, we are not saying that abstinence needs to be tossed out the window. Right. We're just saying that perhaps abstinence plus at least all of the uh, the studies seem to indicate might be a better way to go. Sure. And I mean, I think absolutely if a teacher, if a sex ed teacher is talking to young kids, you absolutely want to put abstinence in the pot as far as options because you want to make sure kids feel safe saying no. Exactly. They don't feel like if I don't have sex, all my other friends are having sex. Mm-hmm. If I don't do it, people are going to think I'm 
lame and I'm going to be left out and I'm not going to be whatever. Like, no, you know, young kids should know that abstinence is a purely wonderful, uh, you know, uh, option. But for those kids who decide to eventually become sexually active, they need to know about uh, contraception, condoms, STDs, the risks and the rewards that are out there. Yeah. Prevention and preparation. Right. So listeners, send us your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is the address. And I have one here about our episode on women and anxiety from Mitch. And he writes, my close friend just had multiple heart attacks. She's 27, works out, eats healthier than anyone I know, doesn't smoke, drink alcohol, or use caffeine. Doctors were perplexed by her case, and in trying to put in a stint, they caused her to go into cardiac arrest. She was then rushed into an emergency open heart surgery. My goodness. A few weeks after the surgery, she started having chest pains again, and when she went back to the hospital, the staff treated her horrifically. They kept suggesting that the pains were psychosomatic and a nurse came in and told her, you know, you can change a lot of how you feel with your mind. And the nurse proceeded to put my friend on Ativan, anxiety medication that did her more harm than good. And even though she just had this extremely serious surgery, none of the hospital staff took her seriously. And finally, she found a doctor that took her symptoms seriously because a 27-year-old should not have three heart attacks in under a week. However, I can't help but wonder if her extremely serious condition Condition would have been taken more seriously if she were a man. Good question. That we is did. A good question. We touched on that in mm-hmm. our podcast about men responses to men versus women as far as anxiety goes. Yep. Another anxiety email is from Ian. He said, I had one full-blown panic attack in my life that I was afraid was a heart attack. Social anxiety and slight OCD. I will set my alarm five times when I'm particularly stressed out or touch the top of door jams as I walk through them. Ian, I do the thing with the alarm clock all the time. Don't worry. I'm with you. (laughs) Anyway, strong social bonds are the thing that really keeps it at bay more than anything else. Most of my very close friends live on the West Coast, and the times I am more relaxed and not anxious are when I get to visit them. Strong social bonds are the thing that really keeps it at bay more than anything else, though. Most of my very close friends live on the West Coast, and the times I am most most relaxed and not anxious are when I get to visit them, compared to where I live on the East Coast, where I've struggled to find meaningful friendships. And I think that is correlated with my higher anxiety level here. I'm working on it, but it's a slow process, as opening up to the new people produces a lot of anxiety in me, even still. Anyway, it is a little nerve-wracking writing this to complete strangers, but I thought I'd share my story as another thing that helps me with anxiety is forcing yourself to push your comfort zone a bit at a time and subsequently realizing that the world did not end. Thank you, Ian. And thank you to everyone who has written in and shared their stories as well at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And you can check out the blog during the week. It's stuff mom never told you at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?